We are staying with our study of Genesis. It is not out of sync with the Christmas season. If anything, it shows us why Christ had to come as he did. And I hope you're going to see by next Sunday why I chose to do this, because where we end up next Sunday with an emphasis on verse 15 is with a wonderful promise from God that is very pertinent to this season. But today I read in Genesis 3, continuing from where we were last time with the description of the fall of man and woman. I'll read verses 6 through 13 of this important third chapter of Genesis. Listen to God's Word. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. This is God's holy word, defining things that all the Scriptures will be unraveling and bringing God's redemption as a cure for what happened here. In childhood, I'm sure that you, like I, played sometime or other with dominoes. You probably have stood them on end close together and made a line, and maybe you made the line snake around if you had enough of them. And then, of course, you tipped one over and watched them all successively fall. I once saw years ago on TV an attempt to set the Guinness record, the Guinness Book of Records, for the most dominoes toppled in one successive line. I believe it was a half a million. They were donated by a manufacturer. There were so many. And it actually took several days to place them in lines and spirals and various designs all over the floor of this gymnasium to get this all set up. Can you imagine what it was like in the late stages of setting that up? They went around with their socks. They tiptoed, lest some false move might prematurely start the whole thing going. They wanted it to wait for the absolute minute when the cameras were set up and ready to roll. And sure enough, they succeeded, and you know what happened. One key domino was pushed, and the whole thing began to zip all over the gym so that in minutes 
tens of thousands of dominoes were falling in all their lines and patterns until the very last one was just as much fallen down as the first. I want you to hold that scene in your mind as we think about Genesis 3. Last week we began to investigate mankind's historic fall into sin. Behind it was the personality of a tempter who is simply named the serpent. I told you that I believe with all the integrity of Scripture behind me that this serpent is none other than Satan, the archangel who fell from the presence of God by his enormous pride and ambition. I do not think there's a talking snake in Genesis 3. What is more accurate is to think of Eve facing a created being of unknown form. I admit I don't know what he looked like. But he was nicknamed the ancient serpent in keeping with that name that is used to describe Satan elsewhere in Scripture. In Revelation 12:9, he's called that ancient serpent, implying he was always called that. I believe this creature was probably handsome and beguiling. My wife said to me, after all, no, no woman is going to be led astray by a creature who's repulsive to her. But the serpent didn't come and directly say, I am an atheistic monster who has come to shatter your innocence and drive you out of paradise. There was no such direct agenda. Instead, he planted a shadow of doubt about what God had said. And he massaged that until it became an outright assault upon the truthfulness of God. Today we pick it up here in verses 6 through 13, and we see in this announced very simply the crucial moment of disobedience and sin told in the simple words, she took some fruit and ate it and gave it to her husband and he ate it. Now this was not magic fruit. It wasn't poisoned with some witch's spell like the legendary apple in Snow White's tail. Nothing in the fruit itself or in the tree itself of the knowledge of good and evil was what afflicted Adam and Eve. It was supremely the act of defying God, the act of openly disobeying the Word of God that had been so simply put to them. And so Genesis 3, 6, and 7 describe the most disastrous moment in all of human history, in this simple act. Nothing was ever the same again. People doubt it, they laugh at it, they mock it because they say, you don't mean to tell me that all of humanity was affected by some people eating some fruit. Well, no, not from eating fruit, from disobeying God. All of humanity was affected by that. You have many opportunities today with repeated performances. In in my childhood, it used to be The Wizard of Oz was on once a year on TV. So you older folks remember that. It was a big event. Oh, The Wizard of Oz is on this Sunday night. And you remember how (coughs) that movie begins in black and white. The landscape of Kansas is all black, actually kind of a brownish white almost. And then, of course, when Dorothy arrives in Oz, you've got this blasting, full-color scene. 
Well, I like to think, at least, that what we have here in Genesis 3 is exactly the opposite. Up until now, we've been observing God's creation as he made it full of wonders in full-color, high-definition video with surround sound. All of a sudden, paradise goes black and white. And the film becomes grainy and scratchy and the sound level very poor like you were watching maybe some old Charlie Chaplin film from the days when talking films just began. Our theme is this. God is known and reverenced by trust in his revealed word. That's the only way you can know God, by trusting the revelation of his word. When trust in his word is broken, the knowledge of God is shaken off and soon despised. And it's amazing how immediately here in Genesis 3 we have God's human beings made in his glorious image with his mind and spirit slouching around Eden wearing ridiculous fig leaf coverings. Because of their shame, they had to hide from God, blame each other, and inherit a brokenness which has never passed from the human race from that day on. Human dominoes named Adam and Eve fell, and we toppled with them in a chain reaction that continues through every generation of history. Now, first I want to look at verse 6 today for the analysis of a great fall. For this verse does dissect and summarize the motives that were in Eve's mind when she was deceived. It says she saw that the fruit was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and desirable for gaining wisdom. Isn't it interesting that those three distinctions correspond just about perfectly to what 1 John 2.16 in the New Testament calls the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And in that summary there in 1 John, those categories summarize everything in the world that is not from God. The lust to have something for physical appetite, to have it because it's beautiful or, or somehow a glittering prize, and to have it because we will gain from it in some way. Now again, the serpent did not say, Eve, don't eat from, or you should eat from that tree. Go do it. He was never that direct. He simply caused her to link the fruit of that tree to something that would taste good. And why should she be deprived of what would taste good? Her mouth started to water for it. Now, that was actually absurd when you consider that she had every form of wonderful food available to her. Nothing denied. She wasn't hungry. Unlike Jesus, when he was tempted by this same serpent in the wilderness after a 40-day fast when his body was getting close to death, she was full. She had abundance. She was, you know, like you feel after you went to the Christmas dinner party. We had one Friday night, and I said, oh, why did I have two desserts? She had everything she could have wanted, but she began to physically hunger for the one thing that she was told she couldn't have. 
And then it delighted her eyes also. It it must have been a beautiful tree. We don't know what kind of fruit it was, but it must have been attractive. It, It looked good. And she thought, surely God doesn't want me to miss out on a good experience of this beautiful thing. And it appealed to her pride of life. She thought, my mind will be enhanced. I will have wisdom that I don't have now. God has deprived me of something, and I need this thing. Augustine said 1,500 years ago that pride is the beginning of all evils. But you cannot achieve a knowledge that is like God's knowledge, which she was promised, by acting in rebellion against God. Yes, she did get to know evil. She already knew good. She didn't have to have any further experience of what is good. God had only blessed her all her life, her short life. But she got to know evil. But the interesting thing is that, you know, you'd think, well, maybe I can know what evil is in sort of a detached philosophical way. I'll be able to to think like a great thinker, and here is good, and here is evil, and I'll, I'll sort of hold it at arm's length and study it. Well, you can't know evil that way. The only way you can know it is to experience it, to plunge headfirst into it. And to do that brings a horrifying experience of immersion in things that are sometimes like your worst nightmare. To obtain a direct knowledge of evil, you have to cast aside the blessing and the favor that comes from obeying God and His Word. And so we, we see here, we're told in verse 6 that Eve's temptation attacked her from these three angles, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. The Bible's explaining why Eve was deceived. Now, at the end of verse 6, it does not explain why Adam was deceived. Notice that it merely says he was with her and he took what she gave him and ate it. And there's a complete silence in the Scripture about Adam's motivation. Now that's very curious because in just a few verses later here in Genesis 3, when God is speaking in a sentence of judgment and even curse of punishment upon the man and woman, it is Adam who will bear the brunt of the divine curse. And yet his motive isn't separately explained. The New Testament does give us some hints to go on. 1 Timothy chapter 2 also indicts Adam rather hard because it says there that he was appointed to be the head, the leader of this relationship. And yet instead of acting as a spiritual leader who would have said, no, Eve, God said, don't do that. Steer away. There's plenty of good things. Leave that alone. You've been deceived. He acquiesces without a word. And it seems as if he becomes the follower, not the leader. And that's what 1 Timothy 2.14 says. Adam was not the one deceived. The woman was. And so Adam is the one who bears the responsibility. There's not a shred of excuse for him. There's no detailed analysis of his motive here. He appears to sin in simple defiance of God with eyes wide open as he does it. He obeyed his wife instead of the Lord. 
Eve followed the serpent. Adam followed Eve. No one followed the Lord. And the result was a spiritually seismic event like an earthquake that's not a 10, but a 20 on the Richter scale because it shook the whole earth. That's the analysis of a great fall. Now we look at verse 7, particularly the first part of verse 7 in Genesis 3, and we see what happened immediately, the paralysis of guilt and shame. The eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. It is no accident that verse 25 of chapter 2 kind of dangles in the air. It sounds a little strange hanging out there. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Keep that in mind as you look at the beginning of verse 7. The eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. Adam and Eve weren't physically blind. They could certainly see each other quite well. They didn't need cataract operations or anything else. But now their eyes morally are opened and they are awakened to understand that they no longer live in a world that is as transparent and full of trust as they thought it was. Because they have believed Satan's great lie, now all of a sudden the shadow of the lie is everywhere. It's on each other. And they look at each other and they think, could she be telling me the truth? Would he lie to me? Would he deceive me like the serpent did? And all of a sudden, they've been stripped of a large measure of the dignity that they each possessed in God's image from the creation. There are actually people who will say, reading this in kind of a secular way, they will say, well, their eyes were open. That was good. That means they, they saw reality now. <laughs> I've had one of you come to me and say that you learned in a class somewhere or were taught somewhere that it was actually a very good thing that finally their eyes were open because now they could be realists. Let me tell you, that's ridiculous. The reality that was true reality is the world before sin. The world after sin is a fantasy world. It's a world like the funhouse mirrors. You know, you go in the house of mirrors at the carnival and they have the mirrors bend in strange shapes so you're, you're very thin in one and very fat in the other and, and you're all weird looking. That's the world that you see now with the shadow of sin and death on it. What people call reality, if they mean by reality the, the everyday business of the world and economics and politics and you know, what happens in the big skyscrapers in the city, that isn't reality. That's the bent world. That's the distorted, bizarre world that isn't in its intended form anymore. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, now we see things as in a clouded mirror. We don't see clear anymore. That's the world that we're looking at as our moral consciences awake and we see this nakedness that makes us guilty and ashamed. Now, the Bible makes quite a big case for this term, nakedness. It's kind of under the surface, but it's there all through the Bible. To be naked in the Bible means a total exposure. It's something that armies use to their advantage. When you conquer a people, you strip the people and make them slaves. So you not only control them and shackle them and cause them to be under your subjection, but they're ashamed all the time as well. They're humiliated. They've lost their dignity. 
And in fact, that's the way you executed somebody in the ancient world, preferably naked. And all of our artworks that show Jesus with a nicely draped loincloth are probably false. He was almost certainly naked on the cross, utterly humiliated by his enemies. You see, in the Bible, nakedness was more than just a physical issue. It was moral, it was emotional, it was spiritual. Being naked was such exposure that it was like the judgment of God who could see you, see everything about you, and this allowed other people to see you all the time. It was a symbol of God's judgment. And it brought shame and it brought guilt. But amazingly, some people could be so blatant in their behavior, they could even get beyond the shame by ignoring it. In Jeremiah 6, the prophet of God is speaking against bold and arrogant people who were very far gone in their anti-God behavior, in their sin. The prophet said in Jeremiah 6.15, Are they ashamed of their loathsome conduct? No, they're not ashamed. They have no shame at all. They don't even know how to blush. Doesn't that describe a great deal of conduct of 21st century people and the Hollywood depravity that's equivalent to parading naked down Main Street without a sense of shame or a single blush? You see, God intended marriage. Go back again to Genesis 2.25. God intended marriage as the one safe place where one man and one woman, in a sense, uncover themselves. Not just their bodies, all their secrets, their souls, who they are before God. And they gradually tell one another everything there is to know. And the Bible is saying you can be naked and unashamed in one place in the sanctuary of marriage where one other person knows all there is to know and still cherishes you. Why is divorce such a terrible pain? Because the one person who's known everything now has turned against you and abandoned you. But you see, by making these fig leaf coverings that Adam and Eve found these big leaves and fastened them somehow, what was that saying? That was saying that they realized even their marriage, even this place of sanctuary and safety was no longer a place of complete transparency and trust as God intended it to be. They had to hide from each other. And then we have this biblical reaction that accompanies nakedness. Since the Garden of Eden, we call it guilt. Genesis 3 is the beginning of objective guilt. That is, feeling guilty because you are guilty. You see, there's a difference between objective guilt and subjective, and this isn't high-flown stuff. It's pretty easy, actually. There is subjective guilt, and and counselors have to help people. If they come and, and they're guilty because they feel badly about something they should not feel badly about. You know, it's, oh, I just can't shake this feeling. You know, there are Christians who, who are coming and are, in effect, denying Christ's salvation because they say, I feel so guilty. Well, wait a minute. You need not feel guilty about that which Christ... Have you asked Christ for forgiveness? Have you confessed that sin? Has Christ promised to forgive? Yeah, oh yes, yes. But I still feel, no, you're dealing with subjective guilt that you need to let go of. But there is objective guilt that's real. I cite the case often, you've heard it, I think, before, of a story of a college girl who came to the campus pastor. 
And she said, Pastor, I need help. I I feel guilty all the time. Help me find out how to stop feeling guilty. I shouldn't feel guilty, but I do. Well, the pastor said, why? Well, she said, I don't know. It, It all seems to have to do with the fact since I moved in with my boyfriend. And the pastor said, well, you feel guilty because you are guilty. You are guilty of disobeying the law of God. And it's not just a feeling that's going to go away like a skin rash if you put the right cream on it. It's a problem that needs resolution in your obedience, in your confession, and in the forgiveness of God. And that sense of shame and guilt that God puts there is is kind of like the pain when you touch a hot stove. It protects you if you pull your finger back. If you touch the hot stove and just say, oh, that's interesting, that's a new feeling I haven't had, I'll think I'll leave it there for a while and see what happens. That's what people do when they deny shame and guilt. And sooner or later, the alarm bell is ringing, but they don't hear it anymore. Under this shadow of guilt and shame, Adam and Eve showed us that they really had died. Spirit, what was the promise God had given? The day you eat of it, you will surely die. Did they drop in their tracks? No, but they died. Their souls died. Their souls expired that day. They were no longer healthy. And their physical deaths would come later. What in the world could be done to remedy this terrible new situation? Well, thirdly, let me tell you, they chose some things to do. Unfortunately, they were all the wrong things. They were religious things, things that people do when they create a religion. And it begins at the end of the second half of verse 7 right through verse 13. They chose what I'm calling fig leaf religion to respond to spiritual death. Quickly, three things they did here in this fig leaf religion. You know what religion really is, how to define it? Here's one definition anyway. Religion is any action a human being initiates to cope with spiritual death. Human beings sense that something's wrong between them and the universe. Whatever concept they have of God, they sense I'm not in right adjustment with it. I'd better do something about it. And what they're going to do is going to be called religion. Religion is any action a human being initiates to cope with the inevitability of spiritual death. Well, all right, three things they did. First, cover up from each other clothing themselves with broad leaves. It was the first step ever taken in salvation by works. You see, sin is secretive. It pushes us towards self-protection and hiding. The next religious step was hiding from God. Not only hiding from each other, but from God. They hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden until the Lord called to the man, it says. Now, you might think it's odd that I call hiding from God a religious step because someone says to me, now, wait a minute, I thought religion was reaching out for God. No. Religion is actually any human action you take to cope with spiritual death, and quite often it involves running away from the true God. That's what Romans 1 says. Fallen humanity knows in creation there's a fundamental Obvious, natural knowledge of the things of God. What do we do with it? Do we say, wonderful, I know this God, I love him, I want to worship? No, we don't say that. Romans 1 says we suppress it. We have a little jack-in-a-box in our family that comes from the 
early 1970s, one of the first toys ever given to any of our children. It still works amazingly. Grandchildren have stomped on it, thrown it around, wound it up 10,000 times, and it still pops out. I love this little jack-in-the-box. And what do you do with the, with the clown as soon as he comes out? You know, the child is, wonderful, the clown came out. What's the next thing you're going to do? Put him back in. Put the top down. Seal it up so you can wind the crank again. What do we do with the knowledge of God that's in creation? We put it back in. We put the lid down. And we say, I don't want to know that God. I don't want to know. That God's kind of scary, actually. And I feel some fear around him. He's holy. He's sovereign. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. I better get away from him. Jonah tried. Remember Jonah? Jonah tried as hard as a man ever has tried to hide from God. You might remember the basic outline of his story. The psalmist said, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I make my bed in hell, you are there. But you see, here in Eden, communion with God stopped being a sought-after delight. And God became someone to be avoided because of the stain of sin and shame on the conscience. What a pathetic delusion to think we can get away from God. All right, two religious responses. Cover up from each other, hide from God. The third one is to shift blame. The Scripture has some wonderful humor in it. I think verse 12 is a great example. In this grim scene, there's a little bit of humor in verse 12. As Adam makes his response to God, have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat? Well, you better give an explanation. Okay, God, I've got an explanation. The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave it to me, and I ate from it, as if that explained anything. But notice the wording, the woman, that woman you put here. Do you remember chapter 2, how the man, or the first spoken words I told you, chapter 2, verse 23, the very first recorded spoken words of a human being in the Bible, Genesis 2, 23, were Adam's rapturous exclamation, wow, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Now the same woman is that woman. And in indicting her, look at what else he says. That woman you put here with me. Not just the woman, but God is being blamed. This is a tragic, although comical, statement of a man who is spiritually dead. He's ready to make every excuse, every circumstance, everybody else on the scene. She did it. I couldn't get away from my parents' influence. You have to understand, I didn't have a good education. Those friends of mine led me astray. Stop. Where's your responsibility? That's what God asks. Flight from God leads people to evade responsibility and cast blame on everything else in sight. You and I can see through Adam here as if he was transparent. And yet we do exactly 
what he was doing all the time. We have an excuse for every behavior. When the right response is simply to stop and say, Lord, I face it. I have sinned grievously against you. I throw myself on your grace and mercy. Because you see, in the final analysis, every mere religious response against sin induces you to cover up, run from God, or pass blame. And when you do any of those things, the covering you achieve is just about as effective, if you can imagine on this fairly fine day, that we, it was February, and out those windows is a February blizzard. Religion is just about as effective as going out in that blizzard wearing fig leaves. Religion always forgets something. It always thinks that the need to deal with spiritual death is something I'm going to do. It forgets the grace of God. And that is everything. Because you see, costly acknowledgement of my responsibility and open confession of it, repentance of it before God is not a religious response. It's a gospel response. It's a grace response to the God who is already reaching toward me and running in my direction. Every religion ever devised by man is a pathetic fig leaf covering in the final analysis. But somebody has to be blamed for sin and its death penalty. God announced that it carries the death penalty, didn't he? The soul that sins will surely die. That death penalty's got to be reconciled somewhere. How about this reconciliation? Romans. 517, if because of the trespass of one man death reigned, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and righteousness reign in life through the one man, Christ Jesus? Even though I said it's a religious way to do it, I'm going to turn on you and suggest that you should pass your blame. You should pass blame on somebody else. Pass it to Jesus Christ. Not because he caused your sin, but because at his cross he took it on him. And he said, Father, I've come into this world to take Tucker York's blame for sin, Carol Rogers' blame for sin. I won't pick on the rest of you. I came into the world to be the scapegoat. Will you ask Christ to take the blame for your sin, to take it away and keep it away? Because when you pass the buck to the one called the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, you have passed it off of yourself in the one direction where it will never come back to you again. And God comes to men and women like he came to Adam in the garden saying, where are you? He knows where you are. He doesn't lack knowledge, but he's calling you. Where are you? What's going on in your life? Why are you thinking the way you're thinking? 
Why are you hiding from me? Because he knows that in the grace that he worked out at the cross of Jesus, we can stop hiding from God, hiding from each other, passing blame in fruitless directions, and our relationship with the God we're fleeing from and everybody else can be reborn. Know this. Jesus' gift of complete righteousness is the one and only cover-up that God puts his smile of approval upon. Father, I pray that the coming of Jesus in Christmas would bring with it this message the whole amazing message of your grace, doing what our religion, our reasoning, our works, our irrational blame-casting can never accomplish. How we praise you for the one on whom the blame for every believer's sin rests now and forever. We pray for that new life, which is really the restoral, restoring of us the state of Eden promised to us in eternity. Thank you for this wonder. In Jesus' name, amen.